This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. Coming up next, conversations on human rights with Speak Up, Korerotia, here on Plains FM. Eina mana, eina reo, eina ho e fa, tena koto katoa, no mai ki tene hotaka. Speak up, Korerotia. Tune in as our guests speak up, sharing their unique and powerful experiences and opinions. And may you also be inspired to speak up when the moment's right. Ko speak up Korerotia tene, ko sale kaltana ho. Today we're talking about heritage and human rights, which is a topic I'm really, really interested to learn more about as we progress our conversation today. We've got a lot of high-level kinds of topics to deal with, but I'm hoping that all our guests will pull in their own expertise and their own kōrero and their own stories as we go through to provide some examples of some of these high-level issues we're going to be discussing. We've got four highly knowledgeable guests with us today who come from a range of backgrounds and it would be really nice to hear from you a bit more about yourselves and why it is you're taking part today. We'll start with you Karen, you're joining us from Wellington so you're the only one who's not here in the studio today unfortunately. Yeah, kia ora koutou, ko Karen Pollock aho, I am a heritage advisor with Heritage New Zealand Pohere Taonga which is our country's national historic heritage agency so one of my jobs is to look after what's called the New Zealand Heritage List Rārangi Kōrero which is all of our listed places Um, so basically I get to tell those stories the stories of those places and why they're important I guess for me sort of human rights is not an obvious intersection with heritage at first glance but but it actually is um, and something that I also look after is our Rainbow List project, which has the aim of telling the stories and histories of queer communities to start to fill some representation gaps in our list. And that's one of the key ideas or themes I suppose you're going to be bringing. I'm super excited to hear about your work with the Rainbow community. Great. How about Hatessa? We go with you next. Kia ora, ko ahau te tahi o ngā tautiaki i te whare taonga o ngā pākehu whakatekateka o Waitaha, ko Hātesa Samantafa toku ingoa. Um, I'm a, a curator Māori Pacific and Indigenous Human Histories at Canterbury Museum. I got into this career because it was a way to connect to a very rich heritage that was not celebrated in our society at the time and it was more dismissed and ignored so it was a way for me to connect to my grandpapa's time the period of Samoa it was a way to connect to a source of inspiration because there's a lot of Tonga in there and I essentially started as an artist as a creative so looking at Canterbury Museum it was really a um was seeing the potential in the place and thinking that I could possibly do something in there that was meaningful, not really for myself but for for my peoples, the Pacific community here in Canterbury. And you say at the time, when was it that you got into this work? I was introduced to the museum when I was about 15. Yeah, and I had pretty much grown up. Um, I was born and raised here. And I would say, um, uh, yeah, it was a difficult time to be Pacific or be of colour. Yeah, it was a, it was a um, difficult time. I mean, not everyone has the experience, but um, for me, we went to a predominantly Pākehā school and then shifted from that to a predominantly Māori and Pacific high school. So there were a lot of kind of identity issues and just the putting down of of um, Pacific people's ways of being, you know, the only things that were highlighted at the time were dancing, singing, just a really performative way of looking at our culture rather than a, 
a deeper understanding of our history and our heritage. Yeah. It sounds like you're going to be bringing a very lived experience of how we connect heritage and human rights then. Okay, I'm Victoria. Kia ora. I'm Victoria Bliss. I am the Heritage Conservation Projects Planner at the Christchurch City Council. And I guess I represent the very traditional form of heritage that people think of when they think of heritage, that it's something that is about buildings, it's about regulatory authority control of buildings, it's about protection, it's about conservation. That's sort of the background that I came from. I originally started working in heritage at 18 at the Council for the Care of Churches back in the UK, which was about as traditional as you could get because it was the conservation of historic church buildings. And that was really how I got into heritage. It was the love of the old buildings. But it wasn't just the buildings. I realised quite quickly, even though I didn't understand or could really express it at the time, that the buildings were the place that held this heritage and this meaning. But they weren't the be-all and end-all of the heritage in their own right. And it's taken me from 18 to 53 to really find what that means in terms of heritage through my own career and career development. Uh, I moved to New Zealand in 2006 and went into this role where my jobs were around resource consenting for the Anglican Cathedral, the Catholic Cathedral, New Regent Street, so the key iconic heritage buildings across the city. That obviously changed quite markedly with the earthquakes and the loss of heritage. And then I was very lucky in uh, 2015 to be able to be taking on the role of project lead for the council's heritage strategy. And that's really when I think I grew up in heritage and I started to mature and fully understand exactly what it means because that strategy was one that was developed in partnership. So suddenly this white girl from England with all of her traditional ideas of heritage and conservation was introduced to the values that sit behind heritage, the ideas of the Poe that guide us and why heritage has actually got more than just a role as being kaitiaki, that it has meaning and that it's a living, breathing thing that is so much a part of life and so much a part of our identity. And really since that time in 2015, um, I've moved over and I'm doing a lot more work now around the intangible heritage and engaging with communities and understanding what heritage is in a very, very different way from the way I was educated and the way that I trained. Fantastic, really cool. And our final guest, Rosie. Kia ora koutou, ko Rosie Ibbotson tōku ingawa, no iorupi au, no ingarangi au, ingarei kei o tōtai tōku kainga. Thank you so much for this kind invitation, Sally, and it's good to work with all of you here. Yeah, what do I do? So I teach and research at Te Whare Wananga o Waitaha University of Canterbury. I'm in the art history department. My approach to the subject and indeed the approach of my colleagues is a sort of expanded version of art history. We think about art history and material culture. But of course, even that doesn't cover all of the things that we would consider heritage, especially when we think about intangible heritage, as has just been mentioned. Yeah, as part of my work, I am the coordinator of um, a postgraduate diploma in art curatorship. Okay, really cool. I'm super excited about his goodness. You bring so much wealth of knowledge to this corridor today. To start off with, what is heritage? We've already touched on this idea that it's something that's tangible. We've talked about buildings, for example, but also intangible. We've talked about dance. We've talked about traditions. But I'd be really keen to talk with you more about the different ways that heritage is viewed and how those views impact what it is that you do. Victoria, you've already kind of touched on it, that it restricts almost in some ways how people relate to and view heritage. But any comment you've got around that would be really good, just as a starting point for our conversation today. In my job, certainly come from the perspective of place-based history. That's what our work hinges on. But again, as um, Victoria noted, it's not just a building. That's why we, we use the word place. 
So it can be a landscape, it can be a monument, it can be a road. You know, there's all sorts of different places that can hold the stories of our past and our communities and our sort of cultural identity. But it can be a challenge, I think, sometimes for people, especially when you're thinking of heritage places, that that buildings sort of dominate people's understanding of what heritage can be. From the outsider, it can be difficult to expound the views of heritage beyond a building. And the other challenge that we have, of course, is that buildings come and go. And often the buildings that endure represent a certain sector of society, a dominant culture. And so it sort of reinforces <laughs> inequities in um, things like heritage lists. And so we have to think, you know, really laterally about what heritage can be in terms of a place. And it's not always something you can stand in front of and walk through the door of. One of the key moments, I think, in my own personal experience and perspective on on this question came when I first went and met with the six Papatipurunanga uh, to talk about the partnership in developing this strategy and I said to them well we're, we're writing a heritage strategy or we've been asked to write a heritage strategy but it's not something that I feel I've got the capacity or the capability or the knowledge to do and the hour that we had actually identified and put aside for looking at what may be a relationship or whether there was interest or not was all taken up with the question is well what do you mean by heritage and around that table there were six different perspectives from the six different runanga and everybody had a different perspective as to what heritage was and with that in mind we went out to ask people and i think it's about having that open mind because heritage is as individual as any one of us here is there's the, the sort of more traditional idea of it being about the grand buildings or the big public spaces because they're enduring and they're the landmarks and they're what people see. But it can also be really humble. It could be the tree that was planted by a certain person. It could be the stone that was moved to a certain place. It could be a place where something happened and there's no longer any physical remains there. It could be a knowledge that's passed down. I mean, so much of, of the heritage we have has actually come through oral traditions. It was never written down. It could be a Wayata that has meaning that a lot of us will never understand, but the heritage of that sits with a certain group of people. So I think the thing with it is it's it's incredibly big and incredibly grand. It's incredibly small and it's incredibly humble. It's very personal. For some people, it's shared much more collectively and other people, it's really closely knit within their own particular whanau. One of the things that we came up with as our way to define it, because under that definition, it's more a question of what isn't heritage, <laughs> is your heritage or what is of value to you is something that you have inherited or created as part of your inheritance that you value enough to pass on to future generations. And that was one that came through talking to people. And I can't really argue with that because it encompasses every single area of heritage. Our name, Poheritanga, Heritage New Zealand Poheritanga. Poheritanga is a place to tie or anchor our treasures. And so for me, that, I guess, does speak to what you've just been talking about, Victoria, that it's it's very much what people and communities value. And so it's not up to an organisation mm -hmm. like Heritage New Zealand Pohiri Taonga to tell people what their important heritage places are, although, <laughs> you know, we do do that. We must be humble and listen and hear what those those treasures are, you know, and what the, what we can do as an organisation as a government agency to to help to anchor those treasures so that they are respected and preserved for present day and, and for future generations. What Victoria was saying about this question of defining heritage, if indeed it can be defined, does slightly remind me of conversations we have in class at the University of Canterbury where we um, talk about the difficulty of defining art, um, obviously art being a kind of key form of heritage. Something that often those definitions tell you is not really about art itself, but about the particular perspective of the person defining it. 
I think something that's really important to overcome when thinking about heritage, especially in Aotearoa, but more generally, is this kind of Eurocentric um, split between nature and culture that's been perpetuated by certain um, structures of thought. Not least the World Heritage Convention, which defines <laughs> cultural heritage and natural heritage. Separately. Yeah. Mm. That's very interesting. <laughs> I didn't know that. But I think, again, that's indicative of a framework that doesn't fit a lot of um, perspectives and viewpoints. You mentioned a tree being um, a sort of great example. Mm. Uh, we have the same thing even within our own organisation, that when we were writing the heritage strategy, all of our engagement with Mana Whenua, with the Papatipurunanga were and the environmental heritage. And I had to say, well, actually, I'm looking at the cultural heritage because environmental heritage sits with the natural environment team and they're not really seen together. To add to that, like, when I came into this career, heritage was perceived as architecture, sites, places. There's still this separation between natural and human history or heritage. It's been nearly 10 years now that I've been at the museum and I was doing a lot of work before then through uni around like museums, representation, whole heap of stuff like that. But it seems to have changed when now there's more of an understanding from, I'll just say it, Pākehā colleagues or people in the sector or related sector who now understand that for, for us, heritage is really, it's anything that represents or teaches us or celebrates or just anything to do with our past. So included in that is things like our tattoo patterns, our tapa cloth patterns, so certain patterns um, that might be considered as art now is actually like our heritage arts. It's our heritage material. This is the legacy of our people. And you cannot separate because all these things are made of natural resources. And so these things are part of a natural environment, ecosystem. And so for me, there has never been a separation and I've always been really super keen to try and do something that shows that you know, try and work with our natural history team at the museum. Um, at Canterbury Museum, we have natural history and human history. But I can't think of them separately. Like, it's it's always interesting that a lot of what I have to do, I actually go and speak to our senior natural history curator about it. I think the idea of kaitiaki, of our heritage material or sites, isn't extended enough to our environments and the resources in there. It's not fully encompassed just yet. We're nearly there, but we're not quite there yet, where we can look at a swamp area and say this is this is a heritage site and care for it in that way. What I'm thinking as you're talking is things like the tradition of harvesting harakeke, for example. Mm. It's taking that natural product, but the actual action, the activity of harvesting it is in itself heritage and something that's been passed down the generations. It's like practices, yeah, exactly. it's ways of being. That to me is heritage. It's not only material, information, knowledge, resources, sites, places. It's just a way of being that is passed down but not passed down. Like it's just heritage is here now. Like. Mm. Heritage is not a stagnant thing for me. It's something that is continuously being made, critiqued and reinterpreted. It's just a necessary obsession, I think, that <laughs> that we all kind of have because we all want to stabilise as humans. You want to kind of know your place or know how things came to be. We might have our first song now. And Karen, you've chosen one for us. I have, yeah. I chose Anna Coddington's rendition of the uh, Waiata Puria Nei. I just love its meaning and words, and, and I find her particular incarnation of the song just really beautiful. Great addition. Thanks, Karen.
I'd like to start off section two thinking about why is heritage so important? And if we're thinking about this in the context of human rights in particular. I think one of the things we need to remember is that when we talk about heritage, we're talking about cultural heritage. And as soon as you start looking at culture, culture and identity and what they mean are one of those incredibly fundamental human rights that is so at risk and so vulnerable because it's so difficult to actually put tangible constraints around. We've just spent ages discussing what is heritage, what what is culture, what is identity. And while we might know it or feel it, or while people might look back and identify certain aspects of it as having had cultural value or heritage value, at the time we might not realise. What we have seen throughout history is the idea of this sort of cultural assimilation um, and also the whole idea of cultural annihilation that I know just my own family history going back my grandparents on my father's side came from what was Russia and is now Ukraine so we've got sort of a real empathy there with how the Russians and the Ukrainians have interacted over time and what that's done to the culture and identity of that side of my family. My husband's family uh, came over to Manchester from Ireland in the 1950s and he had his culture crushed out of him completely. You know, he could not speak his native tongue. He went back to Ireland and saw the place names and the pub signs and everything that he had grown up with changed into English. I'm speaking here as a Pakeha who's come to New Zealand, but but if you look across time, colonisation, one of the first things that seems to have happened is that either brutally, deliberately destructive and violent removal of or else insidious but determined destruction of those things that make your culture. It's not even about the places, but it's about the language, the belief system, the folklore, the traditions, the ways to gather, the ways to meet. So I think that's why it's really important to, to keep remembering that heritage is a human right in that way, That because our culture and our identity and our very being is something that over time, if we don't protect it and preserve it, it gets eroded and it's a massive loss. I agree. I think that heritage is important because it's one of our tools now. It's one of Māori, Pacific and Indigenous people's tools. It used to be used against us, but now it's one of our strongest tools to align ourselves and even uprise when it comes to teaching our children the significance and the significant aspects of our heritage and empowering them in that way. Heritage is important to me because that's our backbone now. It's our like, it's a tool of the Pākehā that we can now use in terms of how Pākehā have established what heritage is. Yeah. I can't explain it quite well, but I think it is important for that reason. It is one of our tools now. And it's important as not just a, a resource for us to, to draw on and a source for us to draw on in terms of empowering ourselves, but it's also something that we can now disestablish what has been said about us, what has been taught about us, all those types of things. And uplift our heritage it's a tool against capitalism let's go that far (laughs) (laughs) for me it is because um, it is something that should not be monetized or commercialized this is our inheritance and we we have a shared heritage all of us here you know we have a shared heritage and then we have our individual heritage Heritage is super important. It's a way that we can stand on the same platform. One thing that that makes me think about, Hatessa, is um, the way in which heritage can protect other forms of heritage. So I'm thinking about, for instance, bird extinctions in Aotearoa in the 19th century, obviously at the hands of white settler colonial violence. 
And one of the factors that contributed to uh, the loss of birds was the attempts to suppress indigenous knowledge systems which protected those species. I guess that relates to what you were talking about with heritage being a tool and the preservation of some forms of knowledge and practices can ensure the thriving and protect other forms of knowledge Mm. and practices. I like what you said about capitalism as well. (laughs) I'm wondering if that's got anything to do with kind of chronic underfunding in the sector across lots of different countries. It's just really hard for the heritage sector, I think, to fight for what should be of more significance. Heritage is part of our well-being. I experience it at the museum when different groups come in and you, you just see the uplift in them and you see they're like... Even just the kids sitting up, it's like they're puffing their feathers now. They're excited that I just said what my name was, and it was Pacific. And I'm showing them all this Pacific material, or I'm talking about the museum or my role there. You see them puff up, like they're so proud, because how important it is to our health. You know, we have groups that deal with mental health that come in. It's really important, and I don't think that it's a significant as what it should be. Like, history is taught in schools, but not in the way that I think it could be. There's so much potential there for there to be more understanding of heritage than just history events. History and heritage are often conflated as a single term, and I think that's a whole other discussion and a whole (laughs) other debate, but the history is what has happened, the facts, the resources of what's happened and interpretation of it through different lenses. But the heritage is what we live and what we feel and what we breathe and what we are. And it's sort of that that living element which history doesn't capture. The word that you used earlier, Hatessa, uplifting, that really rang a bell in my mind and it reminded me of a conversation I had recently with Dame Catherine Healy who's the National Coordinator of the New Zealand Prostitutes Collective over a place that's sort of come to our attention and it's a place that represents the sort of history of sex work and the struggle for civil rights and equality and law and decriminalisation and all of those sort of really important thing. It was such a a wonderful conversation because she used the word, this is such an uplifting project. And I found that with our Rainbow List project, our Queer Heritage project, that the mere fact of recognition of histories and places and communities that have, you know, traditionally been ignored through things like heritage lists, it's so meaningful. For me as a practitioner, being able to participate in uplifting different communities through heritage is really fulfilling. It really speaks to that sort of well-being and identity function of heritage that we were talking about earlier. I'll add an example, a personal example, if I may, to that, which is sort of moving from uplifting to joy and expressions of joy, that I was at my daughter's graduation from high school Again, graduations where I came from, when I had my graduation, they're terribly formal and everybody's sitting down in seats and everybody's got their suits on and you're in your gowns and everything. My daughter's graduation, first of all, it was in Toreo first and then in English second. But the thing that that I took away from it was the sheer and utter joy of those young people and their families and how they expressed it. When somebody went up and got an award... There was an impromptu haka for them to celebrate what they'd done. The Pacifica community got up. All the girls piled onto the stage and did this amazing dance. The Filipinos got up and started singing. And all these different cultural groups, when somebody from their community achieved an award, they got up and they celebrated it through their own heritage, through their own language, song, dance, whatever. And it was completely unrehearsed and completely impromptu and spontaneous. They were carrying that graduation, not just for themselves, but for all the families who had led up to them being there. But the joy of celebrating together through something that is part of their cultural identity was unbelievably moving. I actually felt like such an outsider myself because they had so much pride and identity and belonging that they could express so beautifully through traditional songs, through their traditional language, that as a European here, 
I don't have the ability to do that. I don't have that heritage. I just lack this language to be able to express that kind of joy. When you come from a history background like I do, the academic training and background, you're sort of taught to be objective and factual. But I see that there's a real sort of social advocacy in the work that we can do with heritage and all of its sort of dimensions and that we can be proud of that. I sort of see it as unashamed social advocacy. You know, with my Rainbow Project, I have the well-being of our country's diverse queer communities, both past and present, at its heart, and that that's valid and okay, that we don't need to be always objective, because otherwise I think we lose so much and we lose the impetus to, I guess, undertake these sorts of projects. Just for me personally, that's been a really sort of rewarding realisation that actually it's okay for me as a heritage practitioner to um, to be an advocate, a social advocate as well, that that's valid and right. Cool. Just to add to what Karen was saying, I was thinking about this use of the word objective. And I guess I wanted to highlight how even terms like that that are sort of presented as terribly rational and terribly scientific actually have their own history. And so I think it's really important to be aware of the heritage of the knowledge systems that we're working from and within and often trying to dismantle. And I think it kind of reminds me that sometimes aspects of heritage, you know, say from colonial cultures, they're harmful as well. And that's another reason they need examining. So I often say this about art. Art is not all lovely speaking truth to power. There's certain art forms from certain contexts that have been used to suppress other art forms and other contexts. So I think that kind of critical Mm. view is really important. And that's not to say those forms of heritage should be ignored, but it's another reason to examine them Mm. and to examine them critically. Something I was thinking of last night on why heritage is important is that heritage provides us the opportunities to re-examine how we view the past, how we look after the past, how we implement the past into now and how we take it forward. That's what I mean, like it's a platform now, it's a tool now. It makes us accountable. Heritage allows us or should allow us to critique heritage, the importance of it, how it's practiced, how it's viewed, perceived, interpreted, all of it. I think one of the things that that I'm seeing during my lifetime it's not even around that the fundamental changes that are happening in terms of overthrow or overturning of these more traditional colonial ideas and ideologies which which are fantastic but more of an awareness of the fact that it's it's actually okay for people to have differences of opinion differences of interpretation and that they're equally valid and respective and and that there's a place for all of them to weave together to make a whole so that we're not constantly trying to rewrite other people's narratives in our own words or make them fit with us or as a reaction to our own that we're allowing other people to have a voice and to give their narrative from their perspective obviously there are some hugely hugely harmful narratives but actually we're not trying to invent a common heritage or a common history or a common understanding we're saying what actually unites us is that we've all got our own histories and our own stories there are themes that run through them that we have in common but we don't all have to be the same what makes us so special and unique are are very often our differences and the things we learn most from are often the things that are different between us very nicely put We're going to have our second song now. The words aren't on topic, but it's Here Comes the Hot Steeper. It just feels like it has that vibe of our engagement, Māori Pacific and Indigenous engagement in museums. Now it's like Here Comes the Hot Steeper. It's my hype song. Even though it's not from my culture, it has got that vibe of I've got all my cousins all around just doing what you were saying about at the graduation that were just hyping you along. This is Speak Up Court at Otea and we're talking about heritage and human rights with Victoria Bliss from the Christchurch City Council, Rosie Ibbotson from the University of Canterbury, 
Karen Pollock from Heritage New Zealand and Hatessa Somanutafa from the Canterbury Museum. In this final segment, I'd like to think about some of the threats that we're seeing to heritage and what is being done or what are you all doing to try and protect and preserve heritage? We've already talked a lot about how important the preservation of it is. We've also talked a lot about how heritage needs to move with the times. It's not something that is static. So I'd just be interested to hear about anything you've got to say on those sorts of questions. One of the major issues for my organisation, Heritage New Zealand Pauhiri Tonga, is climate change and the absolutely devastating effect that is having on communities' heritage. We are always being told about coastal erosion that is exposing Urupa, Kor Iwi, and is literally washing away <laughs> our community's heritage. We also have marae threatened by, by coastal erosion. And it's pretty safe for us to say now that this is a consequence of climate change, that people are literally seeing their heritage and history running away into the sea. And so it's a really, really pressing issue, but also a very difficult one because it brings in all sorts of other, you know, it requires lots of money. These events can happen without warning. So it's a really difficult issue, but it's something that we're going to have to face and talk about because it's happening right now. I have two hats on for this because I've got one hat that is for the tangible physical heritage and one that's for the intangible heritage. At the moment here in Christchurch, one of the biggest threats to heritage was obviously the earthquakes and that has pretty much devastated what was seen as representing the heritage of Christchurch pre-quake in terms of that beautiful city that visitors came to colonial gothic revival Christchurch not necessarily all a bad thing because what's coming up is actually telling a lot more stories of the heritage that was here before so we're getting the Manafenua streams coming through and the work in that area is fantastic but we've got the physical threats there we've got another big threat at the moment which sits around urban intensification and housing issues and the housing crisis. It's cultural heritage, it's also environmental heritage as well, with looking at building on land that really is the most fertile land, perhaps in this country, and putting houses on it rather than using it for farming or where it should be. We've also got the fact that land value now, land price now is seen as having more value than heritage value. And that's one that I think we're always going to come in contact with Back in the UK, if you had a scheduled listed heritage building, it was seen as being more valuable than having one that wasn't. Here in New Zealand, from my experience, it's very often the opposite. You either have a heritage building owner who loves it and will fight literally the bulldozers off to protect that building, and you've got the other people who look at it as a dollar sign for the land minus the dollar sign for the process of demolishing the building on it and then what their profit will be when they rebuild. So we've got that price versus value, which is mm. feeding back to what you said, Hatessa, around the capitalist idea of heritage. Yeah. The mm. intangible heritage we're finding is facing different threats. Um, we've got obviously archives and documents that are starting to come through now that have survived the quakes or where people who gathered them are starting to age and are looking at succession planning. So old photographs, um, as technology evolves and changes, there might be materials, archives, data that is protected on a medium that is no longer something that is readable. So, you know, floppy disks, <laughs> microfiche, all these things. So we're having to look at digitizing collections to make sure that Yes, we've still got the physical original, but we've also got a digital copy and something that can be saved and passed on for future generations. The area I think is particularly at risk, and that's biased because of where I'm working at the moment, but I think it's it's the real risk of losing the heritage of those communities and groups who don't see themselves as having heritage. I know Hatessa has spoken about this big revival and I've seen it coming through, but I know a lot of people I work with when I first go to talk to them, they say, well, we don't have any heritage. And when you sit down to them and you start to talk to them, of course they do. It might be a younger heritage than a lot of the buildings they look at, but I've been working with some of the Pacifica groups recently looking at things like uh, the hip hop festival. 
And they didn't see that that was necessarily something of heritage. But once we started to unpick it, you were looking at the first hip-hop crew in New Zealand was formed here in Christchurch. I mean, how amazing is that? The urban DJ movement that came out after the 2011 earthquakes when the clubs all moved out to the suburbs and it took over New Zealand and then it spread further across the globe, came out of Christchurch. This is heritage that goes back to maybe the 80s and comes through to nowadays. But actually, it's heritage that that is only one generation in a way from us. And we really need to try and capture that and record it and appreciate it for where it is now. But it's not recognised. Traditional heritage fields don't recognise it. When I went to say to people, I'm going to be working with and looking at putting funding towards gathering the stories and the heritage of early development of hip-hop or early development of graffiti art, people looked at me slightly askance. It's not till you start to actually explain where it's come from, where it means, and what it says about the culture, the identity of the people that developed it and and for whom it's part of their culture, that you realise just how important it is. And I feel that's really a threat, just through lack of recognition. And that's not just from us as heritage professionals looking in, it's actually from the people who are part of it themselves. They probably don't realise just how important what they've done is and and what a legacy of heritage they're leaving. That's really cool. That is really cool. (laughs) To add to that, for me, some of the threats to heritage in the way that I understand heritage are funding and commercialisation of aspects of our heritage. You know, the highlighting of Pacific dancing, singing and and entertainment can become problematic because it is being viewed as entertainment and something that is great to see, all the colour, all the noise. But I just want to put like a thought in there that we need to be careful how much we highlight that as just our heritage because that has in my mind, become the only forms of culture that are now being represented as our heritage when there's so much more behind that. So I think one of the threats to heritage is people themselves, even my own people, how we perform our heritage, how we perform our culture is is starting to tip. There's starting to be an imbalance where that is all that's concentrated on rather than our languages, how we looked after our environment, all of that. There's starting to be a little bit of an imbalance there. So when it comes to funding, funding will go to something that is going to have performances, of course, and be the idea of heritage or culture that Pākehā view you know, what is palatable to Pākehā is what they will fund. If they keep funding these aspects of our heritage and not the projects where a student wants to research and highlight another aspect of our heritage, like the environmental issues of our heritage plants or our heritage birds, the funding doesn't won't go there. And commercialisation of those aspects, so having events that are ticketed that have a lot of Māori or Pacific performers or speakers, but then you look out into the crowd and I, I've gone to so many talks that I've been asked to give and I'm giving them, but I'm not giving them to my people, so I'm not empowering my people. And for me, I will say this and I'll stand quite strongly with this, it is my people first that I need to educate and uplift and empower before I start sharing out and empowering others because there's so many other forms of empowerment and opportunities that are out there already for other people. That's one of the threats, I think, is how we work and do things and how we select people to do talks or, you know, it's like also have a think that it might be difficult to share this part of our heritage when it's not the right people to be sharing it to you know like yeah absolutely I think the question of audiences is fundamental 
a question of sort of cultural gatekeeping, isn't it? Early years, we talked about using heritage as a tool, but then if funding is going to certain groups or certain expressions of heritage, then there's still more work to be done. Just thinking about funding, why can't communities be trusted to use any funding that's given to express heritage in a way that's meaningful for them and doesn't sort of need to go through such a gatekeeping process. Trusting communities to tell their own stories in the way that they want to and in the forum they want to and to who they want to. This was one of the really big issues and barriers that came up when we did the engagement uh, for the Christchurch City Council Heritage Strategy because we went out not just to the traditional stakeholders but we specifically targeted our more diverse and ethnic communities and asked what the barriers were. And as a result, the council did create an intangible heritage grant fund. It's still ratepayers' money, so there has to be accountability, there has Mm -hmm. to be a process that's followed. But that grant scheme is specifically targeted at allowing communities and groups to identify what is of heritage significance to them how they want to record it, how they want to share it, and how they want to pass it on. And we've had some incredibly fascinating, eye-opening projects that have come through that grant scheme. And it's one that I really feel is groundbreaking. I'm actually really proud to be able to be part of that scheme. We had a, a big hooey with the Pacifica community because we really felt we weren't seeing as you said, Hatessa, much more the sort of, you know, token elements of Māori and Pacifica. So we went out and we got lots of the the people involved in the Pacifica community, those who wanted to do projects, those who struggled to get funding elsewhere. And we had a hui and said, well, what are you trying to do? Why is it important? And we wrote our guidelines in such a way that it's based around values and outcomes rather than outputs. If the community or the group who are applying can show that for them it adds to their heritage, to their culture, to their identity, to their belonging, they can apply for the funding. We're only really a year in. I think we're at about 45 grants. So it'll be really interesting to reflect in two or three years' time and have a look and see how successful that's been because it could be the perfect model for doing just this. But it's still early days. This show is part of this funding round, so thank you to the City Council. (laughs) Now, we're running out of time, unfortunately, but just as we wrap up, what would you like to see in terms of your big wish list in terms of heritage and human rights? My wish list always is changing, but currently I really would just love to see this redevelopment through of the museum. With this new redeveloped museum, there's a lot of potential to critique how we have been viewing heritage of Māori, Pacific and Indigenous peoples. I'm really excited. What would I like to see? I want the community, local and national and international, to come to Canterbury Museum and experience a different kind of viewing of heritage from what we've originally had. So I'm really excited for people to see how we have worked with mana whenua. All these things that are happening in the museum that a lot of people don't realises going on. One of the things on my wish list is to see a space for Pacifica in the new redeveloped museum. I just put that out there. I know know my colleagues will be listening to this, so (laughs) put this out there. I really wish for a Pacifica space where we can can exhibit and enjoy our heritage, share our heritage, and also have a space for current reinterpretations of heritage, art, new artists, not just go in there and look at people's things from the past. It's actually experience how our own people experience heritage, things like that. So really it's just to see a space for Pacifica because I know working in there that we already are aligning quite well with mana whenua, with that being a solid foundation. Oh, well, one of my wishes is to see our Rainbow List project bearing really beautiful fruit, which for me is having new places entered onto the Rarangi Kōrero, the New Zealand Heritage List, that have a really significant queer history. And that history and those stories are why we are seeing it as a heritage place. 
because that starts to redress the silences. We're seeing that happening right now. It's a bit of a <laughs> watch this space situation, but that is really dear to me and it's exciting to see it happening. One element we didn't get into too much today that I'd been hoping we'd talk about was how heritage can uphold certain norms and how it can also be used to subvert or challenge those norms. And I think that the queer history of Aotearoa is one of those examples that's really great to highlight and celebrate how things have changed in that space and the role that heritage has played in that. Yeah, absolutely right. I mean, you've got a historically marginalised community in all its diversity where once it was illegal to be your true self in many cases or is socially unacceptable, yet queer people were always there. We've always been here. You know, that's a real guiding force for me. Queer people are here today, but they were here yesterday as well. And they were here many, many hundreds of years ago. We've got such a rich takutapui history that was silenced by missionaries and colonisation. Now, finally, things have started to change and those stories are now turning into one of celebration and recognition. But we're really having to play a catch-up game because at the moment, we don't tell those stories through heritage but things are changing, which is really great. I think my big passion is sitting around our young people and the younger generation and what we pass on to them and what they inherit. And I would love to feel that my grandchildren in Aotearoa, New Zealand, and in Ototahi Christchurch grow up where anywhere they go, they actually can see the heritage of everyone who has lived, is living or will live here reflected across the city, whether it's through art, through music, through architecture, through planting, through sculpture, through landscape, whatever. But that anyone who comes here from anywhere or who lives here can feel a sense of connection to this place and that somewhere their heritage is included in the narrative. Just a tiny, tiny aspirational dream there. (laughs) As for me, I guess I sort of wish I could hand these wishes to people who aren't necessarily considered somebody who's kind of speaking from within this sector. But I think things that would support people more generally are more funding. I think that's probably something we could all agree on. But I thought if I just said more funding, it would sound like a little bit of a... (laughs) A cop-out. I just want for there to be more structures in place in Aotearoa dedicated towards conservation that can help care for our diverse collections. And this is not to overlook all the existing forms of care, but hopefully to see growth in that area. I know a number of our students um, who are interested in lots of different kinds of art have a desire to be conservators and certain forms of training are more available overseas. Well, this has been a super fantastic quarter today. I've really enjoyed it and I hope our listeners have as well. Tena Koto, thank you all so much for coming and sharing your thoughts and your experience with us today. Thank you. Thank you so much.